Berkeley yeah. Can none of y'all mirror me back You can hear me rap It's like hand G rapping his prime I'm young H.O. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Miami Nice. I'm your co-host, Blake Howard. Joining me as always is my awesome co-host. She's a fiend for mojitos. It's Katie Walsh, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. We have emerged once again to record another Miami Nice <laughs> with arguably like a, a titan of the Miami Nice fandom. I There is, you know... The Miami I, Vice fandom, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Not my, <laughs> He is both a Miami Nice fan because of he he is a Miami Vice fan. No, he's I mean, as a person who did one heat minute and has done last twelve minutes of the Mohicans and has been obsessed with Michael Mann, there is one other human being on the planet that is like you, if you do not have an answer about the Michael Mann fandom, you defer to this man. He's the three star general of all Michael Mann obsession. He's one of my favorite people in the entire universe. He is really going a long way to stoke the fires of the black hat fandom um, in every way possible, which uh, is both hilarious and infuriating at the same time, based on the <laughs> amount of interactions I have. Uh, it's the great and wonderful Bill Gettberry, mate. Thank you so much for coming in podcasting with me. And now Katie about Miami Vice. Yay. This is, this is very exciting. Uh, <laughs> very happy to be here. Uh, so, you, uh, Katie, I think brought up just before we started your uh, favorite hot take, which causes a lot of sort of spicy reactions, is that the director's cut, or as Michael Mann calls it in the director's conf uh, commentary, my current preference cut of this movie um, <laughs> is to begin it uh, with the boat race and add a couple of other scenes and change some music cues. But your your version of Miami Nice, uh, Miami Vice rather in preference is the D director's cut. And Katie and I are on record on Miami Nice saying that the theatrical cut is absolutely our jam. Can you talk to us about first that little spicy hot take and then why Miami Vice? Because I've gotten to talk to you a little bit about it before, but I think never in just a a dedicated smorgasbord of your opinions about this movie. In terms of the cuts, my take is not that the director's cut is superior. Um, I actually I, look, and I'll get in. I'll get into this in a, in a second. But the theatrical cut is very very special to me. Um, my take is that. What I would love to see is an intermediate cut, which is basically <laughs> the opening of the theatrical cut, which is essential. Yes. Um, as beautiful as that boat race is, the, the cold open or the hard open of the theatrical cut is for me personally a very important moment in my life. Um, but that hard open in the club and then the rest of the director's cut, that is my preferred cut. I think the director's cut because it, um, you know, it gives us more of Trudy. It, it works that yeah. storyline and it has one of my favorite scenes or my favorite threads, which is the, the flowers mm. um, salutations from your friends in the South. I think that's just an, a beautiful haunting moment that really uh, makes the rest of the film richer and much more suspenseful. Um, and also I think establishes certain themes or clarify certain themes. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to lose that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think, you know, there's little nips and tucks that make the, uh, the theater, the director's cut, you know, the rest of the director's cut a little clearer. Um, and I also, as much as, um, I don't think it should have been a cover of. In the air tonight, non-points yeah, cover of in, in the, the air tonight. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, and I don't know, I've never asked Michael, maybe you guys know, um, I've never asked him why it's a cover and not the original. It's in, you know, at first I thought, oh, it's probably some rights thing. And then I thought, no, 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 no. You know, this is Michael Mann, he is, he is famous for overcorrecting. And it's entirely possible that he just thought this was a much more muscular, modern sound to have this like blaring hard rock cover of <laughs> In the Air Tonight. And every time I watch the director's cut, of course, I'm like, God, imagine if, <laughs> Bill Collins was playing over this moment. How so, beautiful so, this would be. So what I think you're saying is the intermediate cut, which I think Katie and I are also mm -hmm. huge fans of. We are on record talking about that Trudy scene many times. Yeah. Yes, I think every single episode of this podcast, we managed to talk about the flowers, <laughs> also talk about the soundtrack. <laughs> well, you and, hit like every single and, like and, and the cold open. The movie is romance. The movie is romance, menace, and 
music. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Um, but yeah, we've also, I think, like landed on like there needs to be the intermediate cut because we love the um, Namancore Open, obviously. obviously. And, um, you know, the boat race is beautiful, but it should have just been like a trailer or something. Um, but, uh, and, and you know, yes, and, and we love the blooper. Trudy scene and the flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should have been the closing credits. But, yes. but bring bring back Isaac de Bancolet. For, but but for if any editors are listening, could we just get that to happen and also then put the Phil Collins in the yes, edit over the top? Yes. If you could just overlay that with the Phil Collins, <laughs> mwah, sublime. There are you, people you guys, who will do this. We Release need the Abiri cut. <laughs> Release the Abiri cut. The Abiri cut. No, do you guys know Racer Trash? They do the like the vaporwave cuts. It's like this collective of um, editors, and they do they stream them on Twitch. And it's these. It's like they'll do like a vaporwave Clueless. They'll do vaporwave. Like they start. They did a heat. The heat one was mind boggling. Like oh my god. You just need to like get some devil's lettuce and. <laughs> Settle in for a razor trash moment, but they need to do this one. I need to tweet at them to yes, do this one. 100%. And they'll do the Phil Collins and it'll just be like a mind melter. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> it would, I think it would be such a different scene. But Birger, let's go back because you talked about the opening cut of Miami Vice. Uh, that, that, sorry, that that hard open, as you said, mm -hmm. being like a bit of a life changer for you. And I know that I if need you to know. We need to, we need to explain and tease this out for Katie because I'm someone who's actually heard that you weren't such a huge fan of Michael Mann's stuff, but this this moment, this this film was kind of a gateway to an entire reappraisal of his work. Yeah, and and I I, I don't want to overstate it. I liked Michael Mann's films. Uh, you know, I, I had seen um, I had seen Last of the Mohicans opening day in New York. I loved it. I had seen Heat opening day, opening night in New York. Um, so I was always. I was always on board, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was with the program. I, I, I loved um, The Insider. I, I hated Ali, which I now love, one of my favorite movies by him. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, Collateral, I was mixed on. There were certain elements of it I loved. But, and we've talked about this too, and I've written about this, but even Heat, when I first saw it, I thought, well, some of this is great. And then some of it is not so great. And some of it is, he's overreaching a little bit. I mean, I, I, I wasn't entirely or I, I was partly on board with many of the critical, uh, you know, knocks on heat, which was he's trying too hard. You know, he's not, he's going for this Dickensian thing. He's, he's losing the thread of the awesome cops and robbers movie, which of course, you know, since then <laughs> I have since discovered that these are actually the things that make heat special uh, <laughs> and not just another fucking cop movie. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I was, but you know, Michael Mann was somebody I kind of held at a at a certain distance because I was like, ah, you know, there's certain things about this guy that that don't seem right to me as a filmmaker. Like he's always kind of missing, you know, he's always missing the mark a little bit, or often missing the mark a little bit, just because he's maybe overreaching, or he seems interested in things that I, as the viewer, am maybe not as interested in. And then I went to see the, um, you know, it was the all media critics screening of um, Miami Vice. And I mean, the, the, the fucking thing just started. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, wait, 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 we're in the movie. Like the movie has started. Um, and, and Lincoln Park is blaring at me. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I like it. And, and the thing just like sucked me in. It absolutely sucked me in and I totally lost myself inside the movie. And there were elements of the plot that I wasn't entirely clear on. There were lines of dialogue I, I didn't understand. Um, but at the same time, I was so pulled into it and I felt like I was there the whole movie, you know, two inches away from everybody's face. And I was like in the shower with them. I was on the boat with them. I was, you know, at the bar with them. I was like, you know, they were, you were dancing. There dancing was no, with them. Yeah, they were they were dancing, and there was no room for Jesus, but somehow there was room for me. You know, like <laughs> I mean, you, you just get pulled into this thing, and and I, and I watched that movie, and I thought, oh, I get it now. I get it. I get what Michael Mann is about, and this is. 
you know, he is operating on a different level than I thought he was operating on. And that led to me kind of reappraising everything he had done and going back and rewatching everything. And I'm, oh, wait, okay, now I get it. Like now suddenly Ali makes sense. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, I mean, it was a very special, uh, very important movie for me in that sense. Um, it's still, I mean, you know, I, the, the couple of the critics I saw it with, they'll still talk about how like, I just wouldn't stop talking about the movie on the <laughs> subway ride back. Dave Fear and Josh Rothkopf were unfortunate enough to be stuck with me on the way back home from that movie. I mean, it's it's a it's a very special movie, and I was just completely taken with the chemistry between Colin Farrell and Gong Li, um, and I still am. I mean, all the, all these things that worked for me then still work for me. I mean, I watched this. This is probably the Michael Mann movie I've watched the most, um, and it's the one I. You know, as, as I indicated to you before we started recording, when I'm having a shitty day, yeah. uh, there are few things that uh, are better for me as a like an emotional salve than uh, Michael Mann's 2006 film of Miami Vice, <laughs> considered by some to be a, you know, a complete disaster and considered by Mann himself to be something of a, you know, of, of a miss. Um, but yeah. So, so yeah, that's my story. Bilga, I'm so curious because, you know, it sounds like you were an outlier, like at the time when you were, you know, watching the film as a critic and with other critics. And, um, you know, what was it like? Because I've had that experience too, where I'm like, oh my God, I love this movie. And like knowing that I'm going to be an outsider on the opinion and like just being like, I've got to forge ahead with this take that I have. And like, what was it like at the time when you were writing your review or, you know, just like talking about it with the other critics. Like, I know Blake, you've talked about your experience watching the film and people just being like, that was shit. And like, you know, coming out what of the theater. What was with his facial like... hair? <laughs> right? He just couldn't get over his facial hair. I'm like, who yeah. cares about the facial hair? But like, take us back to that, you know, lobby of the screening room in, in mm -hmm. 2006 and like oh. what that experience was like for you, aside from the subway with, with David and Josh. <laughs> well, it, it was, I, I didn't actually review the film. Um, I can't, I mean, I, you know, it was one of those cases where I went to the screening because right. I was invited and I was curious. I don't think I had to write about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's possible I wrote something, but I, nothing uh, major. Um, I still haven't written about this film. Um, I mean, I've written about Michael Mann a million times, but, and I've, you know, often referenced this movie, but I've never actually done a proper well, piece on my, I mean, device. we know that the criterion collection edition of this movie is coming. It, I mean, I'm sure yeah. just, just throwing that into <laughs> the universe. And you know, there's, there's I, a man I, who's written a couple of criterion essays uh, on the show uh, today. He could write up a Miami Vice <laughs> criterion essay. I, Come on. I, I love the Criterion folks. They've they've been very good to me um, over the years, and I, I love the pieces I've I've had the chance to write. Uh, I never pitch them anything. Um, I don't even know if one can pitch them anything. <laughs> you know, I I you know they will occasionally every few months someone will reach out and they'll, they'll be like, "Are you by any chance a fan of X movie?" And usually it's the cases I am, um, or I can be. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean it's. It, it, I've been very lucky in that they've always asked me about uh, a film or, or a filmmaker I've been interested in. Um, so, so I've, I've been very lucky in that sense. Um, but it's never the film I expect, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's never a film where I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am the guy to write about that movie. The only film <laughs> I ever felt that way about that they asked me uh, to do was, um, was Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King, yes. uh, which is a, another film I, I absolutely, absolutely adore and have seen a million times over the years and obviously uh terry gilliam is someone I, I like a lot as a filmmaker so when they asked me to do the fisher king i was like "Ooh, yeah the fisher king um and and i guess you know vim vendors is until the end of the world also uh is a very special movie for me but by and large when they asked me to do a film you know my first thought is one i love that film and two huh what an interesting choice to get me to write about that movie. um <laughs> so I, i'm not expecting to get called up to do any Michael Mann, uh, Michael Mann pieces. I also have this feeling that Mann is a tough one for them. I mean, he's done, they, they, they've done Good Thief, faith. Um, yeah. but I think Mann is a tough one for them because he often has so many cuts and he often has so many, you know, I well, Ali has he, Ali has three, Heat has two, Mahikins has two, Vice has right. two. 
Um, and, and he might also, but he might be one of those people because Criterion loves, look, I am totally speculating, you know, if Michael Mann or Criterion is listening to this, I'm just speculating. I have, <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. insight into uh, how your minds work. But in my experience, Criterion, when it puts out a film, it wants to put out all the cuts, yeah. right? I mean, even Brazil, like the, the crappy, insane studio cut, like they put that out. Um, and I get the sense that Michael Mann isn't one of those, let's put out every single cut of this film. I think he's one of these people. I think Ridley Scott is like that too. He's like, this is my cut or this is my current cut. And you motherfuckers are going to put out this one, um, which might be a problem for, I mean, Thief isn't a problem because there's only one cut of it. Yeah. Um, the Insider, I suspect, wouldn't be a problem. So, you know, right. I feel like that could be a movie that they one day put out. Yeah, Miami Vice, not so much. You know, Ali, not so much. I'd love for them there to is, put out Ali. Yeah, How great would that be? That would know? be great. But there's three damn cuts. There's three damn cuts of Ali. There's and probably it's... a fourth one coming. Who knows, you know? Slip back to at the time. The only other major critic that I remember having a really positive lean into this was Manola. Manola was like all in on Vice, just like you were, and and even put it in a top 10 for that year. And I just remember if you go back to looking at it, which if you were just a sadist, just be, if you want to be a sadist with the three of us, go back and look at your favorite movies as they are presented on Rotten Tomatoes and just see what people said about them. It is one of, if you want to feel shitty, it's just right. one of those things it, to do. It is uh, not a thing I recommend. It's yeah. more like I, I don't get, um like, I don't feel bad about it myself. I'm like, that person's an idiot. Idiot. Like I get <laughs> mad at the people. I do that now for current movies. I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the one thing I did notice at the time was it wasn't so much that critics didn't get it. I, I think that I mean I didn't read all the reviews. I read a few, um, but there were a number of reviews that were that admired the film for a variety of reasons, but didn't necessarily think everything worked. But you know, I remember David Edelstein um, was. You know, like he was basically on board with the idea, like the things that we enjoy in the film, I think he enjoyed. But, you know, he probably wanted a little more meat on the bones and, and stuff like that. I do remember, though, it was either, you know, sometime soon after the film's release, I was talking to a friend of mine who worked for the district attorney's office, and she had just gone to see the film, and she worked with like with drugs like she worked with you know drug trafficking and like that was that was her area of expertise mm. and you know i mean she she didn't know that i was a fan of the film or anything like that but she just wanted to talk about it because you know i was i was the movie guy um and uh and she said you know i i really loved it um and i thought it was incredibly authentic but i also can't imagine that anyone else could like that movie because <laughs> there was so much jargon that i thought to myself this is stuff only i understand like only, it's like stuff that only i and like 10 other people i work with will understand how in hell did it make its way into a hollywood movie um so that of course was was very reaffirming mm. <laughs> i was like yeah of course uh, yeah we're the smart ones hey you know <laughs> um but uh so it was always it's it was nice to hear that and i think that also speaks to something that man does that is that is part of his modus operandi which is you know the stories themselves will perhaps be a little ridiculous and the emotions will be very big and you know the whole thing will be shot through with these romantic notions and you know the story might not always make sense or things might jump and certain elements might not be clear and certain things might happen a little too fast, but it's all grounded in a kind of authenticity where he makes sure that the jargon is right. He makes sure that we all, we already know he's done his research into criminals and ex-cons and cops and undercover people. Like this is stuff he's been, you know, obsessed with for years. So he understands certain things about this world that you know, the ordinary filmmaker or writer might not, or audience member for that matter. And so, you know, there's there are these like two extremes where there's something very kind of unreal about the movie stylistically, 
Um, and then there's something else about the movie that is so incredibly authentic that it's like you've been pulled into the, this world and they kind of work, even though they seem contradictory, they work in tandem. Because if you were somebody who didn't understand this world, if you were an outsider and you'd been pulled into this, if you, you had been pulled into you know, the salsa dancing and the, you know, the boats and all this stuff. This is kind of what your experience would be like. You would, you would just be kind of constantly getting pulled this way and that and thrown into situations where you weren't always entirely clear what was being said or what was being meant by, you know, these words that presumably, uh, you know, you maybe heard, but didn't understand. Um, so I think that that is something that man does. I think he's very conscious about that. Um, and I think, you know, Miami Vice is kind of uh, the maybe even the ultimate expression of that. I mean, I think he, he does that in Black Hat, too. But I think the world of Miami Vice, he's much more familiar with than he is the world of Black Hat. So, you know, like hackers will or, you know, computer nerds will look at Black Hat and some of them will be like, yeah, he got some things right. And there are other things that don't really make sense at all. Whereas I think like you know the people who kind of know the world of like undercover you know narcotics and stuff like that would look at miami vice and be like yeah he kind of nailed some of these elements i today especially for the show i watched i rewatched my like unrated director's edition special features because exactly that talk, like i just wanted to check out because i had a vivid memory of like there's some wild stuff that happens on this. The collateral DVD is great because it shows you that like he had Tom Cruise dressing up like a courier and sneaking into places and putting stickers on the back of people's shirts to signify that he killed them and all this sort of wonderful stuff. And I remember the beautiful chat that Colin Farrell had about this movie that he basically has no vivid memories because he was at the peak of his alcoholism. So he's like, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't remember. There is a moment that they got Colin Farrell into a room during what he thought was a real drug bust. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. and he's in the room and a guy says, are you a cop? And Colin Farrell's reaction in the, in the space and time with the, with the, the police consultants who are actually there, who are real former undercover cops, they watched him rip his shirt open and go, I'm not a cop. And like go, and they're like, that was actually a pretty good move because you know, he said, I'm not a cop. He just ripped his shirt open because I'm not a cop. I'm not wired. I'm not a cop. And the poor guy in these interviews is reflecting on being terrified to the point of sleeplessness <laughs> that he called one of the consultants at two in the morning because he thought it was a real drug bust and goes, I just, I'm charged up, man. I don't know what to do. And then he and Michael Mann visited him the next day and was like, hey, man, you know, that was just fake. But they oh. had no intention of telling him that it was real. And I'm like, this is the kind of shit that Michael Mann does with his cast that is kind of insane, but it's like, it just doesn't happen on other right. movies and should, there's something about it. He or that he has. I didn't mean to interrupt. We can talk no, about no, the no. prank show later. Please go ahead. No, or just that he like had Colin and Gong Lee learn salsa dancing for four months and for like a 30 second scene, you yes. know, like the, it's like the often it's like, you need to be able to like hold your own on that dance floor and look like you, like you can, and it's not choreographed. And I mean, I also think like, if you listen to the director's commentary, like he just, we've talked about this a little bit on the pod, like the authenticity and setting. I transposed this mural from Brazil and even the stuff in Paraguay feels really like he knows, like he's studied this place. The casting feels really authentic in all of the places, you know, the diversity of the cast. I think he like really has done a ton of research on like the smallest roles of who would play these parts and who would be involved in these criminal underworlds and stuff. But and then, yeah, it's funny because I, I was rewatching the um, the film with subtitles on this time with the closed <laughs> captioning on and I was picking up a lot <laughs> like at one point when they're meeting with Jose Yero the first time and they're and, and they're posturing as to, you know, their, you know, legitimacy um, like Rico, Jamie Foxx is, says he's like, are you with the are you with the cops? Are you the Phoebe like the FBI? <laughs> And I hadn't realized that that's what he had said until I was watching it with the um, subtitles. And I was like, wow, that is some jargon I've never heard before. <laughs> but it makes sense. <laughs> it, it, there's so much detail and um, care put into every single element that the most, you know, casual viewer would not even pick up on. But it's important that it's there for the people who do pick up on it and for the people who are in the scene. It's like Fincher on Zodiac, like the, the papers that are in the drawer are like authentic. Well, it's, um, it, it, 
do I remember? I mean, I, it's been a while since I've listened to the director's commentary, but do I have it right? Was that like an actual trailer park they shot in? Yes. And it's like actual like trailer park people that are in the background yeah, of he, the scene. He, he casts so the 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 young man who charges yeah. Rico, Jamie Foxx's character, with a knife is cast from the trailer park, as is his mother. They're two different, they're yeah. from different families, but they were cast from the trailer park to play in that scene. And this is also why why I believe, uh, you know, the, the production was was troubled to a certain extent because he shot in these pretty dangerous places. Yes. And, you know, there was like, a, I mean, I don't remember the exact details, but there was like a shooting uh, and there was a certain point where everybody, especially Jamie Foxx, was like, we need to get the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah. and shoot the rest of this movie. In Florida, um, <laughs> yeah, and I think, and I think that's one of the reasons why Michael Mann, um, you know, is a little disappointed with the results of the film because I think he had this whole climax envisioned in uh, Ciudad del Este and wasn't able to shoot it, which makes the earlier scenes where we see Ciudad del Este kind of weirdly pointless, even though they're beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. But they feel like Michael Mannisms, like he just kind of threw these scenes. There. But no, 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 they were setting up the, the climax, right. which never <laughs> happened. Um, although I, I read. I read a draft of the script that didn't feel all that different from the finished film. So I think it was more just a, a sense of location rather than the actual incidents of, of what was happening. But that's very Michael Mann, like, you know, the location, the mood um, is just as important, if not more so than what's actually happening. Um, so I think the fact that, you know, his, his big shootout and everything kind of happened in, you know, it's like some random parking lot in Miami was, <laughs> yeah, it's like was the, probably a, a great disappointment to him. Um, but yeah, I mean, you put, you take a, a filmmaker who is as perfectionist as Michael Mann down to all of these details. And, you know, this is a man who like keeps cutting his films like over yeah. and over. He's like Rembrandt, you know, like he can't stop fiddling with it. But then you throw him and his production into this like utterly chaotic environment where there's like a hurricane and there's shootings and there's Colin Farrell. You but know, he's, an, it's so weird. Chaos you're, agent. <laughs> you're so spot on though, but he's attracted to that chaos. So that's the that's the fusion of Michael Mann. It's like um, there's and Justin Thoreau, who is just a great character. You know, he's now like becoming in great prominence in lots of movies and shows and and as a filmmaker. But he's like in this movie, he's like you can't Google these places Michael Mann found. Like I don't know how he found them. Like he's in the special features going. You can never find it on Google Maps. I don't know how the hell he got us there. But we're like in this extremely dangerous spot where like police are at either barriers. There's armed guards like holding off the local populace. They do the scene. They get in. They get the hell out of there. It's like, this is a guy who's like, he also thrives on that authenticity too. So, and some of those you just can't fake. And that, right, and that, right. that is also like, like what Burger was saying is I would imagine that's the, that's the thing is like, Oh, I found this place. I can orchestrate this thing here. It might exactly on a map or, and in rehearsals have looked like this, but it's on the side of a great waterfall or, or it's, it's in yeah, the, yeah. it's in the chaos of that Seattle uh, essay um, uh, location. Yeah. Well, and when you ask how he found it, the answer is probably, you know, some ex-con probably told me about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he is, uh, you know, he, he loves to talk about that stuff. And I think it's mostly like, I don't think he's lying. Uh, you no. know, like he is, he loves to talk to, you know, ex-cons, to cops, to prisoners and people, you know, criminals. Uh, I mean, he casts them in his movies. He'll bring them on as technical directors. And this is something that, I mean, I think he gets off on it, which, you know, who wouldn't? But I think he also loves the fact that he can use these people to achieve all sorts of things on screen that other filmmakers maybe can't. And all that is really important. I mean, just just that sense of atmosphere, that sense of authenticity. As I said, you know, that is, I mean, that's the movie. That's the story. Yes. And I think one of the reasons why you know, people don't always love some of these films is we do think of films as primarily stories often. And that's not a terrible way to think of movies, but, but that's the only part of the part of the story, if you will, you know, cinema is, is so much more. And I think that man understands that, you know, there's a certain element of, I mean, it's not, you know, people will say, Oh, it's abstract. It's like experimental. I don't think it's experimental, but I do think that there is a, there is a, um, you know, like the texture of what you're watching is just as important as, you know, the, the, the details of, you know, 
this happened and this happened and this happened. And, and the mood and the feeling that it creates within you. I was just thinking because uh, my lovely co-host here, she hosted a Q&A with Mads Mikkelsen and Thomas Vinterberg about another yeah. round. And I just firstly unfathomably adore that movie in every way that it can be loved. But I, I can't tell you, I've watched the end of that movie because it's available on Twitter almost every day to right. just watch the end of the movie again. And it, that is in a vacuum, just the way the scene makes you feel having seen it before you'd seen it, like just seeing glimpses of it and things like that in the trailers and whatnot. But like those experiences, I think of like those moods and those tones and it's just like little like, almost like music video clip experience summation of a movie. Like Miami Vice has so many of those, like the, 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 like the, the boat looking like a bullet through the ocean and Moby just soaring. Like you could just watch that over again. Like, you know, you know, how fast does that go? It goes very fast. I, that's all I need to see of the movie that day. Like I'm done. That's it. Right. Right. And I, I think that's, that's a whole level of how this movie like folds together in all of these huge but also very contained sequences. To your earlier point where the movie just sort of throws you in, like I could watch that opening every single day, like the end of another round, but, <laughs> um, and I was like watching it today. I was like dancing around like, yes, not encore. Um, but uh, like, but it throws you in. I was noticing how much I was palpably feeling the emotion of the scene. And so you have, they just throw you into this sting that's already in progress. Obviously theatrical cut gives you a little bit more setup for it. Or I mean, director's cut gives you more setup for it, but throws you into this thing that's already in progress. It's already moving. You don't really know what's going on. And then it throws you into the Alonzo situation, which is mm. years long. And it's sort of the end of the Alonzo situation, obviously. But I was like so taken with how emotional that scene is with, um, you know, Sonny and Rico, like really being so devastated by what has has happened with with Alonzo, with John Hawks and how you're I, like when you think about it, you're like, oh, this is like the middle slash climax of a movie that's just starting in the beginning. <laughs> and as much as I, you know, did not enjoy Tenant, which tries to do the same thing. Uh-oh. Um, uh -oh. You said one of uh -oh. Bilga's buzzwords, uh -oh. Katie. I know. <laughs> um, I, the movie is throwing into, it, you into these things. Obviously, when you've watched it as many times as we all have, like, you understand what's going on. But the emotion is still there. The texture, the reality, the sleaziness of the bar is still there. And so you're just being thrown into this world and sort of like learning how to swim in it. But I think that's why the rewatch is so rewarding when you're like picking up on the emotional tones and the subtext and the details and the jargon and all of this stuff. So, well, and the thing that man said uh, a couple of times when I've interviewed him and, you know, he's talked about this other times as well, but this idea that, uh, when he was first getting interested in film as a college student, the films that first made an impact on him were like German expressionist films and like G.W. Pabst's Joyless Street um, and, and sort of the films from that era and around that time, which were all uh, obsessed with the idea of perspective mm. and the idea of how to present on screen the psychological experience of a character. Now, German Expressionism did it in a way that's very different than what Michael Mann does. But that central idea, how does this feel for this character? Not just what happened and what they said and what they did, but how does this feel to be in this person's shoes? Which is, I would say, perhaps the most important thing that cinema can do, right? I mean, I think that literature can do it to a certain extent, absolutely. Um, but I think cinema can maybe almost literally put you in another person's shoes yeah. um, in a way that other forms can't. Like, this is very much what man has been trying to do since the beginning of his career. Now, what's interesting is that early in his career, he achieved this through, you know, very controlled, you know, kind of pictorial, um, you know, new wave style filmmaking, um, which then sometime in the 90s kind of becomes this very visceral handheld, you know, expressive sort of lots of POV shots, over the shoulder shots, following people around, cutting a lot. And of course, once he discovers video, game over. 
Mm. Um, but he's able to, and that's the thing he always said about why he was so taken with videos that he could get so close to the people's faces. Like he's, you know, trying to enter their heads or trying to like go through their, go through the backs of their heads and see out through their <laughs> eyes. Um, and he's able to do that in this weird way by getting so close with video. Um, and that's why I think, I mean, collateral, obviously he does that, but I feel like Miami Vice is in many ways the, the, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the pinnacle of that, of, of his work with video in a way. I mean, yeah. he continues to use it, obviously, but I feel like at Miami Vice, he kind of perfects it in a way because he's working with kind of these, these smaller cameras. This is before high definition, you know, this is before video cameras basically become film cameras. Yeah. Um, so he's kind of created this aesthetic that is like part, part handheld, part, you know, GoPro, part surveillance cam, and he's just cutting between all of them and creating this, this new language, which feels abstract on some level, but another level is incredibly immediate and incredibly like you are there, right? And, and then cameras get a little more sophisticated and he starts to tell slightly more traditional stories. And, you know, look, you, you guys know me, you know who I am. I love public enemies. <laughs> I love black hat, but Miami Vice is kind of the point at which he achieves Ironically, since he's not a big fan of the movie, I feel like it's the movie where he kind of achieves everything he's trying to achieve. Right? Well, well, Katie brought up the scene, the John Hawk scene. I don't know how much we haven't covered it in like a rich amount of depth, but I think exactly what you're talking about about perspectives, because there's a shot in that scene where it's like I think this is the shot for me where I was like, and even more so than that, I'm on call, I'm revisiting it. Is that beautiful shot that goes? It's a one shot of. Colin Farrell's reaction to John Hawks and it's an, then it's another shot to Jamie Foxx's reaction. And then it's this kind of blurred reaction. And you, and that's where I feel like it's adopting Alonzo's perspective. And he looks over the face of Crockett and it's blurred and he looks over the face of Tubbs and it's blurred. And he sort of stares out to those, those wind, the wind bags, whatever they are. And the, 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 the tinsel or whatever it is on the bridge and the wind is just kicking it. And it's just like, he does not recognize humanity anymore in that gaze and then immediately just steps in traffic and that scene is so affecting in in, in yeah. such a in, in such a powerful way and like as Kate, i haven't thought about it katie but like that could have been the whole movie like what the rise of all of alonzo and like right we, we see the summation of it as the engine of the plot of this movie as 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 kind of little a thread of plot we as we get but that scene for me i just i look at it as just a piece of expressionistic sort of cinema and you, and you can just see how many lessons he's learned in his career and that, and really, I, I, I completely agree. I'm a huge fan of, um, huge fan of public enemies as well, but I also think it's, it's the challenge that Fincher had to overcome with Zodiac is how do you make these digital cameras look like film if I want it to feel like film and, and public enemies is the chaos of like, I don't give a shit if it doesn't look like film, but I'm going to still produce this whole thing. Like it's a classic film. Um, so the, the antithesis of the, oh, sorry, the, the tension of the look versus the production is one of the things that kind of make it what it is. Um, but I, yeah, I, I completely agree. There's just something, the aesthetic is so damn perfect for everything about this. And it starts in that weird yellow, like plaque colored moment uh, on that bridge with Alonzo. It's like crazy. I was watching Black Hat last night and like, I was like, oh, I the Hallmark Michael Mann thing is like these super foregroundy shots where it's like someone's head and, you know, super in the foreground or a hand or something. I was like, I would be like, that's a Michael Mann movie, but like later man, you know, yeah. Miami Vice, Black Hat, these other movies where it's just like all these like foreground shots and it's not split diopter because like it's a digital camera, but I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's like the thing where I'd be like, yeah, I know if I did not know whose movie I was watching, <laughs> I would know based on these shots. Well, the Alonzo scene, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think in some ways the Alonzo scene is a perfect summation of the thing I just discussed, which is the idea that story and incident, while important, is secondary mm. to emotion. Because look at the way actual plot points are expressed in that scene. They're just like these fringe, <laughs> little fringe things. Like, right? I mean, so he's, you know, I, I gotta go home. I gotta go home. Uh, Leonetta. We don't really know who she is, but we're just assuming, you know, just wife. 
we cut to a refrigerator, right? We don't see a face, we see an arm and it's, and it's, and it's a man's arm and it's, you know, there's a tiny piece of trickle of like droplets of blood on his arm. And in the background, we see, I mean, there, there are a couple of cuts happening here, but you know, in the background we see, you know, basically a, a pair of feet, a pair of legs on the floor. And it's just, I mean, this happens in an instant. So these elements of like these crazy guys came in, killed your wife brutally. And now he's having orange juice out of your refrigerator. Like this is stuff that is just, just like touched on just enough for us to get it. And in some cases, you know, this is the beginning of the movie and some of us are still probably getting in our, sitting in our seats and, you know, <laughs> buying our popcorn or not. So there are a lot of people that are just like missing all this stuff. And then, you know, and obviously when Alonzo steps into to, to traffic and I mean, we know what's happened, but we see just that tiny trickle of blood. And it's like, did we imagine that? And it's like, of course, we didn't imagine it. Like, this isn't like some random documentary we're watching. And yes, he did, in fact, step in front of the truck. So obviously there would be blood, but it's just this like tiny glimpse of it. So all these elements are just, you know, just like touched on slightly. But what's foregrounded is you look at Tubbs's face and the way he says, you don't have to go home. Mm -hmm. um, and then he says, they promise. And he says, they lie. I mean, that is given pride of place. And it helps to have an actor like Jamie Foxx who brings such compassion He's so, to those lines. Oh, good. Right. In that and scene. We barely, I mean, at this point, I mean, look, we're in a movie called Miami Vice. Presumably we're <laughs> familiar with the characters, but we barely met this guy. Right. right. Um, and um, it's, you know, like that's, that's the movie. Like that's the kind of movie you're about to watch. And he's setting up the, the language of the film. He's establishing the language of the film and, and preparing you for this is, this is what's going to, what, it, what this is going to be like. And you might want to leave if this is not your speed, you know, um, which <laughs> some people probably did. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big, I mean, I think every film kind of creates its own audience to a certain extent, or every successful film creates its good creates its audience to a certain extent. But I'm a big fan of movies that sort of prime you early on for the kind of film you're going to watch, and then you know will surprise you in other ways. But yeah, they kind to... of like create their own audience. Yeah, I think you're you're dead on in, in talking about the way that he's sort of like setting up the speed and the energy and the look and the characters and. Um, you know, it's, I, I was so taken just with that scene rewatching on, on this rewatch and how emotional it is. And even when you're still sort of getting your bearings with the plot or don't even have them at all, you're, but you're struck by how, you know, emotional they are. Yeah. And, and that's the, the thing that's most important. People will knock the romance in the movie a certain, I mean, if you don't like the movie, nothing in it. <laughs> probably works for you but <laughs> right you know like the shower scenes like those are so important the fact that i love that today i heard a sentence that was the shower scenes they're so important <laughs> i just want to tell no, you but, that i love uh, this no. project and you for saying that because no, you're but, not I mean, wrong you're on, right but early on crockett has you know crockett has nobody right yeah. and and you know Tubbs and trudy have this like wonderful relationship to be very kind of intimate relationship where and then we get to see them in the shower and they're like washing each other and then having sex and being playful about it and then later on we get a shower scene with Colin Farrell and Gong Lee and it's like oh he's found like he's he's found the person that he gets to have a shower with like how nice is that you know um I mean and that's kind of like the dumb thing that you do in really oh yeah you know like when you finally find somebody and you can actually like do something like that together it's like hey you know th this is nice this is nice this is the kind of thing that you want um, you're hitting all the miami nice bingo cards here because <laughs> all we do is talk about how much we love those sex scenes yeah well, and, and, and the and, relationships and how much and, michael, the shower scene. and how much michael mann in his commentary does not even mention that one of the most beautiful and erotic and just sensual scenes is happening. He's like, yeah, so Jamie with the guns was um, <laughs> training on a range or some, I just like, man, 
It's the best. He is such a guy in that sense. I mean, he look, he made these movies, so we know that it's important to him, but he never talks about it. You no. know, like he, he's he, like he'll he'll mention it very briefly, but it's clearly really important to him. I mean, this isn't, you know, if he just wanted to have just kind of a sex scene for for the box office, there are so many other ways he could have done it. Yeah. You know, like so it's not like so it's not prurient on his end. Like he's clearly, I mean, this is all, of course, he's so envisioned these worlds that for him this is just a part of this world that he's envisioned so this is as important as you know the scene where they're cleaning out their guns you know but <laughs> but like that's the thing it is as important as the scene where they're clearing cleaning out their gun it's like that's actually a, a thing with this movie um but i i think oh like i appreciate that of these like sort of if you want to call them like dude like filmmakers who make films that appreciate that that are appreciated by men bros being dudes all that stuff and i am a bro being a dude uh <laughs> because i love these movies but man includes adult relationships that have sexy sex scenes that are like but the women are equal and they're powerful and i i've seen you know it's in heat it's in um all a ton of his other movies and I appreciate that so much. Like every Martin Scorsese movie, the women are terrifying and Scorsese is clearly <laughs> afraid of women. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not knocking him for that, but like after hours is about how women are terrifying and like, cause see, like all, there's no good sex scenes in Scorsese movies. Yeah. This is why yeah. after hours was like my favorite movie when I was 16 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what it's like. I'm sure. I'm sure that's what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, there's some issues going on with with women in Scorsese movies, and and that's fine for me. I'm I'm okay, I'm okay with that. But I really genuinely have such an appreciation for for man having adult relationships and and depicting them authentically and depicting them in a sexy way in a romantic way. But it's not you know exploitative or or any of the or like oh we just need to get some boobs in this movie for like whatever you know butts and seats it's like no this is how this relationship would be and it's going to inform Tubbs's character and why he's so dedicated to saving Trudy and that's why we need the Trudy cut you know with the flowers <laughs> and and the, and it it helps us understand his motivation that much more. So I'm super I'm super appreciative of, of man's ability to at least depict relationships if not talk about them on his director's commentary yeah no it's absolutely i think part of you know it's it's absolutely part of what makes his films so special and, and i mean look gong lee you know isabella is the only character in this movie that gets a backstory right i mean there's yeah. a little bit of you know that bit where con farrell's talking about the you know the you know the Almond brothers no brothers I mean, I mean, the, the, the thing with man is, of course, he has a backstory for everybody. Right, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, he he has figured out everything. I mean, you know, I remember asking him about, uh, you know, Chris Hemsworth's character in Blackhead. And he had like, he talked for 10 minutes about, you know, this guy's whole life before the movie starts. And so he has thought this stuff through. But she's the only one who gets a backstory. And, and it's a very touching backstory, right? I mean, it's not just like, some random like backstory explaining how you know i mean look they, she she was a last second replacement the actress and you know it's not like a backstory there to explain why there's a chinese person in cuba which you know is not unheard of but it's such a touching backstory and it's you know it doesn't really explain anything all it does is you know she talks about her mom and you know what an independent person her mom was and her tragic end but you know, it, it informs so much about who Isabella is, even though it doesn't tell us anything about like how she got to where she got. You know, that's really makes the film. That's another thing that makes the film really special and makes that relationship so consequential. So that at the end, I mean, the part of the climax of the film is just them sitting on a by the water for five minutes. And, and it's it's, a, it's an amazing way to end the movie. That's an amazing way to end the movie. This should be an amazing way for us to end this episode. Bilga Abiri, thank you so much for talking to us on Miami Nice. It Literally, to do this show and to not include you in some way, shape, or form would have been a travesty. So thank you so much. And I always love talking to you. And it's so good to have two of my favorite people talking Miami Vice together in this beautiful trinity that we've formed <laughs> where there's no room for Jesus, but there no. is room for us. Katie. There's room for Belga. <laughs> There's room for Belga. Can I put in a plug? Because I just read this Please. book. I don't know if you guys know it. Hotel Scarface. Oh, where I cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami by wow. Robin Farzad. Um, 
it's a it's a i mean it's it's a great read um and it's all about basically you know the the, the cocaine wars of miami uh in miami in the 70s and 80s um really revealing lots of stuff about scarface lots of stuff about miami vice the production which you know about halfway through the book you know miami vice comes to town to shoot and you know all these drug dealers who are like hanging out at this uh hotel are in hog heaven <laughs> um because you know the cast and crew are coming up and you know they're partying with them um but it's it's fascinating also because you know you find out about the real jose yero like there was a guy named jose yero and um there was a guy named sal Mabuda, and you know you kind of find out about the real guys and you know they're nothing like the characters in the movie but they're but they're like other characters in the movie so it's it's a fascinating uh it, anyone who's interested in this stuff uh, i think you would get a kick out of this book getting it on the list miami nice book club <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what's next yes exactly if i did a criterion essay it would be on on scarface sorry to interject oh no yeah get on get on that i i, I know I'm just sitting here waiting on my hands until I, I'm never going to, this is what I can safely say for the, for us and the listeners. I'm never going to get a call up to write a Criterion essay, but I would be deeply offended if he'd ever made its way to Criterion and no one gave me an email. That's all I'm saying. I just, there is no one who has said more about <laughs> exactly. this film than me. Ever. You know what I would, what, what I, if I ran Criterion, what I would do is I would put out heat and then I, I on a separate disc with the set, would be the entire one heat minute <laughs> archive as a CD that they could just, you know, pop in <laughs> because obviously everyone has CD players. So. Um, <laughs> but, but like I would, uh, you know, there, I would find some way to get the entirety of uh, the Blake Howard corpus <laughs> on, on that I, set. I, I am honestly, I watch these great movies, Miami Nice, uh, Miami Vice after Miami Nice, Mohicans after Last 12 Minutes of Mohicans and Heat. And whenever I watch them, my head is like a commentary, but it has all of your voices on it. It's like, if I get to a moment, I'm like, I get to a moment and then someone's voice comes in my head. And I, I, it is it is, it is, is quite a trippy experience because I can't, I'm no longer alone, even if I'm watching it. I'm alone, but I'm not lonely because I have all of your voices in my head, having said all of the great things that have been said. But yeah, that, that that's that's my dream criteria. So I've got no others, really. Come on, come on. They're never going to tap me on the shoulder <laughs> it, for anything it's else. It's the only one that makes sense. It's the only one that makes sense. It's the only one that makes sense. Thank you, Katie Walsh. Thank you, Bilga Abiri. Thank you all for listening. Bill, any final messages before we go? I extend my best wishes to your families. You